Open your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 11 for an opening verse of Scripture. Matthew chapter 11. We just sang, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ redeemed me as his own. Well, let me answer the question. We do know why. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is preaching, and he has learned by observation and experience that publicans appreciated his preaching and heard it. Prostitutes, as known as harlots in the Bible, heard his preaching, repented, and appreciated it. But the seminary graduates, the Bible school students, those that prided themselves on knowing Scripture, hated his message. And so we have these words. In answer to song that we just sang, where we voiced the words, I know not why, we do know why, although I will grant the songwriter their liberty in what they intended by those words, that we cannot comprehend the mercy and grace of God in revealing himself to us. But look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus, recognizing the difference in response to his preaching, did this. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. In answer to the statement, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, the answer is right here in the 26th verse, because it seemed good in thy sight. I want you to notice that Jesus Christ thanked his Father, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, meaning he is the sovereign God over all creatures, because he... That is, God had chosen to hide the things of the gospel from the wise and prudent. Those who thought themselves intellectually superior or educationally advantaged or studious in the things of religion or the things of God did not see or recognize the Lord Jesus Christ because God had hid the truth from them, but he in turn had revealed it unto babes. The foolish, the uneducated, the lower and intelligent, the poor, the sinners of society, the despised ones, God had revealed the truth to them. And so it says in certain places, the common people heard him gladly. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the lawyers despised the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was by his sovereign choice. And Jesus recognized that by thanking the Father in heaven for such judgment upon men that some did not believe because God hid it from them and others did believe because God revealed it to them. These were things that in my past I didn't understand. I didn't know. But to know that there's a God in heaven like this and there is an explanation for why some believe and some don't is wonderful. And I thank God for His precious Word that tells us that. No man can know the Father except the Son reveal the Father to him, and no man can know the Son except the Father also reveal the Son to that man. Now let's turn over to Romans chapter 8 where we were a few minutes ago. I thank each participant that has gone before me and every word that's come out of this pulpit and every word that was prayed in the back room this morning. But let us now turn into the Scriptures and ask God for a blessing of explanation for some things that we can find there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, I've read it to you once, I'll read it to you again. There is, therefore, 
Now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Condemnation has been lifted and put away from those that are in Christ Jesus. And the evidence of being in Christ Jesus are those that live a holy and godly life, walking after the Holy Spirit of God, and those that walk after the flesh are showing that they do not have an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, though we understand being in Christ Jesus as a result of God's good favor in electing men into Christ Jesus, the evidence is living a holy life. And so we always want to balance the sovereignty of God in the election of men to salvation along with the responsibility of men to show and evidence and prove their election to eternal life. Because that's what this text does to us in just one sentence. If we turn over the page to Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, we can see the doctrine of election stated here. This is how we get into Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.4 tells us, According as He hath chosen us, in Him before the foundation of the world. Second Timothy 1.9 says that God has saved us according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. Romans 8.33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? When someone is elect, when we have an elect president, that means a president has been chosen by the electorate. The voters have gone to their voting booths and they've pulled the lever or pushed the button. And so they've made a choice between two, three or more men as to who should be the next president or a senator or congressman and so forth. Election is choice and it's God's choice. In Matthew 11, it was God's choice to hide his truth from some and to reveal his truth to others in answer to the song that we sang. But this election is God's choice. Who shall anything to the charge of those God has chosen? Who shall anything to their charge? What crimes are they guilty of? How will you keep them out of heaven? This is a rhetorical question. There's three of them in a row, verses 33, 34, and 35, and all the answers are negative. No, nothing, no one. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? No one can lay anything to their charge. And the answer is very clear and it's very short. It is God that justifieth. To be justified is to have your sins taken away and paid for by the substitute Jesus Christ and to have His righteousness applied to your account. That is the doctrine of justification. It is not the weak Sunday school definition of just as if I'd never sinned. That will not make you a son of God. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I had lived Jesus Christ's perfect life. Because He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We don't just want our sins taken away in justification. We want the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to our account. And so we have Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Coupling that with Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We get into Christ Jesus by this choice of God, referred to in this verse as election, and God justifies us in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, So that by the obedience of one, Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, we were made righteous by the obedience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is what we have been studying for seven previous weeks. And this is the last week that we are going to spend on the assurance of eternal life. But I wanted to start out this way in order to come to the question that should be asked. Every one of you should ask it, and every one of you should want a thorough answer, and every one of you should want a life that agrees with that thorough answer. And so we, as you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, let's ask the question that we all should ask. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where you should turn. The question is, I see what you've just shown me 
from Matthew chapter 11 and Romans 8, two places. But my question is, how can I know that I'm one of God's elect? That question is written to me. I've had people ask me that question. It is a very good question, and it's a question that we all should be asking. How can I know that I'm one of God's elect? I see that God made a choice to hide the truth from some and to reveal it to others. I see that God has an elect in this world and that He has justified them and there is nothing to be laid to their charge because it's all been paid for by Jesus Christ. But how can I know I'm one of God's elect? Well, God knew you'd have that question. And so He's answered it. The Bible has all the answers if we'll just read carefully enough. And so I want to give you two passages that we've been over in the last seven weeks. And here is the first. And it's one that I want you to remember, thus the repetition. Will you remember the two places in the Bible where God specifically tells you how you can know that you're one of His elect? Here's one of them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. The apostle and his fellow laborers write, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, they knew that these Thessalonians were beloved of God, that God loved them, and they knew that they were God's elect by three things found in verse 3. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. It is not enough to believe. The devils believe and tremble, according to James chapter 2 and verse 19. The devils, when they met Jesus Christ on earth, would run to Him fall on their faces in the bodies that they possessed, and they would confess, We know thee, who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? See, they know that Jesus, they know Jesus Christ in his person. They know he's the Holy One of God. They know that he is going to torment them, and they know Bible prophecy. It's in the future. And they knew that it wasn't time yet. But they confessed all those things. But James chapter 2 explains that faith without works is dead. This mere decision-making salvation that is so common today and has shown its ugly fruit in the lack of real Christian living in most places is cured by understanding the work of faith. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it should change our lives. Faith should lead to repentance or be joined with repentance. And faith should change our lives. It's the work of faith that's the evidence of election. Faith is not the evidence of election. The devils believe and they are not elect. It is the other angels that in the Bible are called the elect angels, not the fallen angels. They believe but it doesn't change their lives. They believe, but they don't repent. When they were on their faces before the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because they knew He was their conqueror. They did not repent, though they should have. It's the work of faith. Then it's the labor of love. It's not enough to say, I love the brethren. It's not enough to sing about loving the brethren. It is laboring in your love for the brethren. It is getting down and dirty with them. It is helping them move. It is getting personal and intimate with them. It is giving up your money. It is giving up your time. It is giving up your schedule. It is giving up your comfort zone. It is giving things up to love the brethren because it's called the labor of love. And then it's called the patience of hope. It's one thing to say, I know that Jesus is coming. I have hope in the resurrection of the dead. But that doesn't mean any more than the devil's already confessed. We know that you're going to torment us. There's something else. It's the patience of hope. It's hope in Jesus Christ and the future that causes you to cheerfully endure negative events. The word patience in the Bible used in a context like this means 
to cheerfully endure negative events because of the hope you have in Christ Jesus, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. See, those are three very strong evidences of election. Knowing, brethren, beloved, we know that God loves you, brethren, because of what He's done in your lives, and we know that you are His elect because of your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. That is a changed life. That is a man that believes in such a way that it changes everything he does. His worldview, his entertainment, his friends, everything he does. His integrity on the job, his cheerfulness, his lack of moodiness, it changes his life. It's a labor of love. He turns into a servant. Instead of being selfish, lazy, proud, lifted up and wanting others to wait on him, he wants to be a servant because he's a laborer in love. And he's patient in hope. He can put up with anything and be cheerful about it and be thankful about it because he's got a hope of everlasting life and he's got a hope that even in the land of the living, he is going to see the goodness of the Lord. Do you understand? Do you remember? If I were to have asked you to put down on a piece of paper the two passages to turn to to show that where you can know that you're one of God's elect, would you have put one, this one? Would you have had it down pat? I want you to have it down pat. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We just had that one. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. See, your election can be known and you can know the election of others. When you meet a person where their faith has changed their lives, they don't watch the same things. They don't go to the same place that changes their lives. When they are a servant and all they want to do is wait on people because of their love for the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they're cheerful no matter what happens, thankful, and maintain their equilibrium because they have great hope in God, you have met an elect person. Now we come over to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Do you know this passage? I want every one of you to know the two passages to turn to because the Bible knows that we're going to ask the question, how do I know I'm one of God's elect? By a changed life. In the three ways that we had in 1 Thessalonians, and now we have this passage. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord for the Scriptures of God. The Bible is fabulous. All we've got to do is read it. And understand it. The the answers are there to every question. Now follow along with me and don't get troubled or bored by a couple of extra verses here. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. Now when the Bible says that you should give all diligence to a matter, is it pretty important? It's pretty important. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Faith is just the bare beginning. It's what the devils have. We are supposed to add so much more to that faith. Add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, Godliness, and a godliness, brotherly kindness, and a brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you, there's eight things that should be in your life. For if these things, these eight things be in you and abound, they should abound, brethren. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Saying, I know him, is nothing. 1 John 2, 4 says, He that saith, I know him, but keepeth not his commandments. Do you know what the loving apostle says? He is a liar and does not know the truth. The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ should change our lives in these eight ways. But he that lacketh these things, that is these eight things that have just been listed in verses 5 through 7, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He's got short-term vision. He's short-sighted. He only sees the things that are down here in this world instead of the things that are beyond this world. 
So he's short-sighted and he has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He is not living like a saved person. Wherefore the rather, verse 10, the rather means against that person in verse 9. Wherefore the rather, don't be like the person in verse 9, but brethren, be this way. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. There's that word again, meaning hard work. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And these things are the eight things listed there in verses 5 through 7. If ye do these eight things, ye shall never fall. It's impossible for you not to be saved because this is the evidence of a saved man. Verse 11, for so, that little adverb means in the way that's just been described by keeping those eight things and you're never falling, so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The man that does these eight things is not going to have the door or gate of heaven cracked for him. It's going to be swung wide open and the angels are going to give him an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, brother. Can you hear angels competing with each other to say, welcome, brother, first? Or welcome, child of God. We're not really their brethren. We're their masters. I don't, and I don't say that disrespectfully. They are the servants of the children of God. The angels are. It says that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. But that's an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we all want. We want an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now it's Jesus that died for us and paid for our sins in order for us to be there. And Jesus paid for all the sins of those the Father gave Him. John chapter 6, John chapter 10, John chapter 17, all three places, common passages of Scripture, refer to God having given to Jesus Christ those He was to redeem. But how do we know that we're those elect? Right here, in verse 10 it says, you can make your calling and election sure. You can prove that you are God's elect by doing eight things. And we've been over those eight things. It starts with faith. And to that faith is added virtue, which is strong character. I'm just going to very shortly mention these things. Strong character of goodness to virtue, knowledge, which is growing in the, and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and His will for your life. And temperance, which is self-discipline and moderation. And temperance is to patience. Patience we already had in 1 Thessalonians 1, which is cheerfully enduring negative events. And godliness, which is living like God and like a son of God. And brotherly kindness and charity, the last two, which is the labor of love from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Did we have the work of faith in 1 Thessalonians 1? Here we could say it's faith and godliness. Did we have the labor of love there? Here we have brotherly kindness and charity. Did we have the patience of hope there? Here it's patience. They're teaching the same thing, sort of. But you can make up two separate lists to get as comprehensive as you want. And then there are other places that we can add to these. But this creates a very nice summary statement of the evidence of eternal life. These two passages create a very nice list of the summary statement of the evidence of election. That's what we've covered. Now what's happened is that the Lord has written His Bible the same way that Jesus preached. Does that make sense to you? That God wrote the Bible the same way Jesus preached. In order for it to have the same effect as the effect of Jesus preaching had. What was the effect of Jesus preaching? I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. The Bible is written in such a way as to hide the truth from those who do not approach it properly and to reveal the truth to those who will approach it properly, just like the preaching of Jesus. Peter said, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16 that Paul wrote in his epistles some things hard to be understood. 
And those that are unlearned and unstable rest those things to their own destruction. Therefore, we have this situation. There are verses in the Bible that sound like you can lose your salvation. So the devil has taken those verses, and unlearned and unstable men have taken those verses, and they have used those verses to overthrow the faith of some and to scare God's little sheep. We covered eight of them last Lord's Day. The, 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 the weightiest ones are found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6 is the weightiest one usually mentioned, then Hebrews 10, then Hebrews 2, then Hebrews 12. And we went over them and I provided you a chart that shows that they're all teaching the very same thing and the Lord has given us a very plain and obvious answer for them. It is impossible for one that God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ to save to be lost. Jesus said in John chapter 6, 38 and 39, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus Christ will not lose a single soul that God gave him to save. That is the teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. Not a single one. He'll save every single one. He is a great Savior. He's not waiting on us to help Him save anyone. He is a great Savior. There are different phases and stages of salvation where we get involved, but not in the giving of eternal life. And so, we have these passages in Scripture that scare the sheep of Jesus Christ. And today, in both of our services, I want to deal with a few more. I have pulled out 25. Some of them have multiple references in the Bible. And so it's really a list of maybe 40 to 50, but we're going to call it 25 and we'll go as far as the Lord will let us in a reasonable amount of time. We covered eight last Sunday. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is rightly dividing the word of truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Oh, there are whole denominations that believe you can lose eternal life. Oh, to live in the fear of that every day of your life. What if you were to have some ungodly thought in your automobile and somebody pulls out of a side street and you T-bone them and you're dead? Do you know what they would teach? If you died with an unconfessed sin, you're on your way to hell. There's whole denominations that believe that. Thanks be to God, our salvation is resting on something stronger than your righteousness. It's resting on the righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Galatians 5, 4 from last Sunday? Ye are fallen from grace. And we saw what that means and what it doesn't mean. And Lord is so good to show us verses like that. There are people that center their whole doctrine of losing eternal life around Galatians 5, 4 when it's not teaching any such thing. But here we go. Here's one. 1 Corinthians 11, it's about the Lord's Supper. I read three verses beginning at verse 27. 1 Corinthians 11. This is painful to talk to someone who's, who's afraid to take the Lord's Supper. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. When we come to the Lord's table, there are two things we want to do. We want to have already examined ourselves and confessed our sins. Jesus died to put away our sins and to come to his table and partake of elements that are to remember his death for our sins while covering and keeping secret our sins without confessing them is to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It is as if you had crucified Jesus Christ yourself. The second thing we want to do when we come is to make sure that we discern the Lord's body in the bread and the wine. We don't want to just see bread. We want to see the Lord's body. We don't want to just see wine, the red color sitting in that cup. We want to see the blood that was shed on Calvary to put the new covenant into force. So those are the two things mentioned in 27 through 29 that ought to be done. Verse 28, let a man examine himself. Verse 29, 
discerning the Lord's body. But I want you to notice, you're doing it unworthily if you break either one of those rules. You are partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. Unworthily is an adverb. You are partaking of it in the wrong way, and you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are guilty of God's beloved Son. And you are eating and drinking damnation to yourself. Okay, that's the words, and the emphasis is to get you along with this little sheep that's with me, or, I hope, with you next time. I believe I've partaken of the Lord's Supper, and I had unconfessed sin in my life, and I'm guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I've done it unworthily. I have eaten and drunk damnation to myself. Does that mean they're going to hell? Damnation's a strong word. We're not supposed to use it in polite company. Though it's a Bible word, and this isn't the only place it occurs. Damnation is a strong word. Does it sound like hell to you? It sounds like hell. But it's not hell. And I thank God for understanding this passage. And I want to comfort God's sheep. It is a terrible and wicked sin to take the Lord's Supper without confessing your sins and repenting or without rightly seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. You have disgraced His body and His blood. But the damnation here is the physical chastening of weakness, sickness, and an untimely death. Look at verse 30. See, I stopped at verse 29 because I was getting you out on the interpretational limb for the benefit of the lesson. Verse 30, for this cause, that is the cause of damnation, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Because of treating the Lord's Supper unworthily and the damnation that results for you messing with God's Son at His table, weakness, sickness, and an untimely early death are the result. Verse 31, For if we should judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Being damned is being judged. And being weak and being sick and dying early is being judged. And if you would judge yourselves, which is examining yourself back there in verse 28, then God wouldn't judge you as verse 31 uses the word. Verse 32, But when we are judged, we are chastened. Oh, I thank the Lord. See, this is an easy one, brethren. We're going through 1 Corinthians 11 just to get your feet wet again this morning because this is an easy one. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Chastening is proof of God's love. God does not chasten all men. God only chastens His sons. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 5 through 14 describe God's chastening. And if ye be without chastisement, of which all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You are not a son of God if God doesn't chasten you. When God does chasten you, it's proof of His love because He's trying to correct you. And so it says that right here in the passage. It takes the word damnation, moves it forward to the word judge, and it says if you would judge yourself, God wouldn't have to judge you. Then it pulls that word further and calls it chastening. As soon as we see the word chastening, we know that it's God's loving favor toward us. And we thank Him. And then, by reading verse 32 with a little bit of understanding, we know that the damnation... Listen to this. The damnation of verse 29 is proof of eternal life. It's not proof of going to hell. It's proof of going to heaven. You say, how can that be? Because you messed around with the Lord's body. God came and made you weak. Or He made you sick. Or He took you out early. Because He did it in love. It's proof of eternal life. Look at that 32nd verse. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There's we versus the world. The world is going to be condemned. Remember, there's, there is therefore now no condemnation. The world's going to be condemned, but we are not going to be condemned because God chastened us, proving that we're His sons. We're on our way to heaven. 
Now, with that being said, does that mean that we should take the Lord's Supper lightly? Not at all. You want to be weak? You want to be sickly? Then come in and take the Lord's Supper having a grudge against anyone in here. You want to have your life messed up? Then come in here and take the Lord's Supper playing around with the world. It's very serious matter. But the little sheep that get scared about taking the Lord's Supper are not on their way to hell because they partook it once with unconfessed sin. What should they do about it? They should confess their foolishness and wickedness of unworthily partaking of the supper and look forward to the next time. And we shouldn't come scared at the Lord's Supper. We should come excited because that's properly discerning the Lord's body. Because we should be excited and thankful that Jesus died for us. Every born-again person that's just heard me Every born-again person with an active mind is going to repent and turn fully to Jesus Christ before we have the Lord's Supper on July 6th, two weeks from today. Can you understand how some would look at the word damnation and think they're going to hell because they took the Lord's Supper the wrong way? But do you see what it actually proves? The damnation is God's chastening, which is proof of salvation. The world's going to get condemned. I hope you can see that. Okay, let's go to 1 John chapter 3. That was an easy one. This isn't quite as clear, but it's just as necessary to interpret it a similar way. Many verses could be raised. I'm going to use verse 9. We could go to chapter 2, we could go to chapter 3, we could go to chapter 5. I'm just going to use 3.9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Well, that settles that case, doesn't it? Anyone born again does not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. A person that's born of God cannot sin. A person that's born of God does not sin. How many can raise their hands and say, I still fit in 1 John? I can't. If we look at the words as they appear. But remember... The Bible is written in such a way to hide things from the wise and prudent and to reveal them unto babes. What do babes do when they find a verse like 3.9? They say, let's take a look at what else John said in this epistle. We know that everyone sins. Remember the two-step approach to interpreting the Bible when you're not wanting to get into the whole study of hermeneutics. The two-step approach is first, what can a verse not mean? What must a verse not be saying? And then second, what is the positive explanation for that verse? You know that 1 John 3, 9 cannot be teaching that a single sin damns a person to hell and it proves that they're not born again. Peter was born again, but he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had a struggle with his flesh that he described in Romans chapter 7 that he often fell to that lust in his members that was still there. So we look around. We come up to chapter 1 and see if he had... Remember, we are prone to using the Scripture as proof text. We go jump into 1 John chapter 3 and we pull out verse 9. But if we were reading the Scriptures, we would have already read chapter 1 and 2 before we got to chapter 3. Does that help in calculus? Does it help to progress through a book? The Bible's the same. Oh, I had someone write me yesterday. Just They gave me a website they wanted to read because they were so enthralled with one-third of the earth being killed by some disease that's coming you know, and they wanted to take verses from Revelation and teach this grand scheme. And I wrote them back and I said, listen, I don't have time to read your web documents that you find in your Google searching. Number one. Number two, Revelation is the last book in the Bible for a reason. It's the last book in the Bible you should be trying to figure out. So why don't you go try to figure out the book of Daniel? And here's an outline on its 12 chapters for the book of Daniel. You know, they wrote me back this morning. Thank you so much for the good advice. Uh, These people that want to jump into the last book of the Bible, there's, there's an order to it. And you know what? 
Until a few hundred years ago, there were no verses in the Bible. And until a few hundred years before that, there were no chapters in the Bible. You would tend to read it more like you read every other book instead of this because you wouldn't have an address system to find them. Watch. If we start in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, 1 John 1, 8. So we're just reading... And we're going to, we know that we're going to end up at 3.9, but we start in chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're, we're liars if we don't think we've sinned. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Look at 2.1. Now, see, now we're in chapter 2. And my little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Okay? So John's telling us why he's writing this epistle. That we won't sin. But notice what he says next. And if any man sin, if any man sin, if we're little children, that means we're born again, we can't sin. According to 3.9, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, going forward, if we sin, we may confess those sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, sins, plural, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, what in the world does 3.9 mean? The only thing that it can mean. The only thing that it can mean that is living, unrepentant, in a lifestyle of sin, shows that a man is not born again. Because a born-again man has a seed in him. That seed was put in him by regeneration, which is a new man that raises his voice and says, you shouldn't be doing that. It's part of our consciences connected to it. You shouldn't be doing that. And we get convicted, and we confess our sins, and we turn again into the path of righteousness. You can't persist in a lifestyle of sin and have any evidence of eternal life. So, if we were to paraphrase 1 John 3, 9, and you know I hate paraphrases, but I'm doing it for your benefit here, and my scriptural justification of doing so is Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. Therefore they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. I have already read the verse distinctly, but I'll do it again to show you that there's only one source of truth, and it's not my mouth. 1 John 3, 9, Whosoever... They all love whosoever, don't they? But why don't you get this in the, in the end zones of football stadiums? Whosoever, whosoever will. I want to ask you, since you're so knowledgeable about the English language, whosoever will, who will? Matthew chapter 11 already told us who will. Those that God reveals himself to. Who won't? Those that God doesn't reveal himself to. So how important is the whosoever? It's not important at all. Right. It just means whoever does. Whoever does, God changed him so that he did. Amen. Whosoever is born of God, any person that is born of God does not live habitually, unrepentantly, unremorsefully in a lifestyle of sin and ungodliness. For his seed remaineth in him, that part of him, that new man that was given to him by regeneration, and he cannot persist in a lifestyle of sin and worldliness because he is born of God. We must take that position on it. Just like we would take the position in 1 John 2.29, back up to 1 John 2.29, if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Does this do with righteousness mean that you only do righteousness and never sin? Or does it mean that is your general lifestyle? You are generally living a righteous life. That is the evidence of being righteous. Right. We've been over this one before, but I, I wanted to go back to it because that's a tough one. You read 1 John 3, 9, and you are humble before God. You see the words, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. But look it. When we look around a few pages, it says, if you say that you don't have sin... You're a liar and the truth is not in you. So we know what it has to mean. Now you have another question for me. Why did God write the Bible that way? Did God know that people would find 1 John 3, 9 and get messed up? Absolutely. Why did he write it that way? 
to give Bible skeptics a reason not to believe the Bible and to give us, his little children, the opportunity to know more than the skeptics by God blessing us with insight. What did we do? How much intelligence did we just show? All we did was say, you ought to read the first chapter in a calculus book before you read the tenth chapter. That's all we did. We backed up to chapter one, we read it, we read chapter two, and therefore we get to chapter three, we know what it can't mean, and Second Peter 1.20 told us that's the first rule of Bible study, because we believe what the Bible says, when it says in Second Peter 1.20, knowing this first. Oh, that's the first rule of Bible study. That no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. And so that's what we did. 1 John 3.9 cannot contradict the rest of the Bible. Therefore, it must mean a man just living unrepentantly, uh, uh, without contrition, without remorse, without guilt, without shame, habitually in a path of sin, shows that he's not born again because a seed will not let a man do that. Matthew chapter 7. Our progress is slow. Well, we are not carrying this subject over. Matthew chapter 7. Before I leave the one that we were just at, we were just at 1 John 3, 9. I want you to turn to Matthew 7. Every born again child of God with an active mind is going to hate every sin in their life. Is going to want to rip it out of their lives. Amen. Is going to want to live righteously as perfectly as they possibly can. Is going to be praying and asking God to give them strength to hate sin. When that thought raises its head, when a man has some foolish, lustful thought about a woman, he is going to say, I'm not going to think that thought. Lord, take that thought away from me. I will not think that thought. Lord, I love you. Don't let me think that thought. And he'll think something else. If you just go from day to day and you're pleasing your flesh and you're doing fun things all the time instead of seeking God and loving heaven and loving his word, you are not giving the evidence of being born again. You could easily be a self-deceived reprobate. What evidence do you have if we let sinful thoughts take our minds, let sinful words come out of our mouths, watch sinful things on television, if we do that and we do it habitually and we're doing it from day to day and from week to week, and you say that you're a child of God, there is no evidence of it. Therefore, while I'm trying to comfort God's elect that 1 John 3, 9 is not condemning them for a single sin, at the same time, I want to blast the gospel trumpet against every single one sitting in this room. You better not be sinning habitually or continually or without great grief and without repentance. Every single one of us are capable of being self-deceived reprobates. You say, well, I know that I used to live for the Lord. That doesn't mean a thing. Judas used to live for the Lord. Do you know that Judas preached for three and a half years and Peter, James, and John had no clue that he was the betrayer? When Jesus said, one of you shall betray me, what did Peter? who did Peter, James, and John think was going to do it? They thought they were going to do it. Judas Iscariot preached as well or better than Peter, James, and John. Judas Iscariot performed miracles by the power of the Holy Ghost, equal to or better than Peter, James, and John. And he's a child of hell, he's the son of perdition, and he's in the hell right now, waiting for the resurrection. Psalm 109 teaches it very plainly from verse 7 to verse 20, where Judas Iscariot is. Brethren, we should all fear before the Lord. The Bible says He has worked in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure, and we are to work that salvation out with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So before I leave that 1 John 3, 9, where I comforted God's sheep, I also want to warn every one of us. We do not want to get before the Lord Jesus Christ and be confounded like five foolish virgins. I know ye not. I had some little children this morning come up to me and say, the five little virgins, the five foolish virgins didn't have oil. And then the door got shut. And and the bridegroom was inside and they came to the door. And the bridegroom said, I know ye not. And I told them those are the most horrible words that will ever be sound in this universe. When Jesus Christ does not acknowledge a relationship to us. How can we prove 
that we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Live like the Lord Jesus Christ lived. It's that simple. He that hath this hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So every one of us, no one has a sin nature in here worse than mine. It's a battle every day. It's a battle every hour. But we can win the battle. That doesn't mean we can be perfect, but I'll tell you how we can be perfect in the sight of God, where he uses the word perfect for us. Every time you sin, confess it. Confess it, forsake it. You say, well, I'll probably do it again later that, confess it, forsake it again. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover it two times that day. Trust me, I've proven it greater than that. And so have the rest of you, so don't think that your pastor is Judas. But it's serious. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Isn't that something? Brethren, that's what we believe in this church. This is what we teach. See, Jesus didn't say, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he, the, but he that accepted me as his personal Savior and invited me into his heart. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible. It, Revelation 3.20 doesn't have a thing to do with eternal life. Revelation 3.20 has everything to do with the fellowship of that church with Jesus Christ. They were already born again church members. But this verse here tells us that the evidence of eternal life are those that do the will of their Father which is in heaven. So if you never want to hear the words that are uh, found in verse 23, I never knew you, then make sure that you're doing the will of your Father which is in heaven. What is the will of your Father which is in heaven? Well, it's to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And Oh, is, that, is, is it that simple? It's that simple. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, 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 have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Can a person cast out a devil and still go to hell? I've already answered that about Judas. Can a man preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and go to hell? Uh Uh-huh. Well, what about this passage, Pastor? Comfort me with this passage. I've been guilty of hypocrisy in my life at times, and I just know that I deserve that sentence. Well, the truth of the matter is, we all deserve that sentence. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from that sentence because we are no longer workers of iniquity because Jesus Christ died for our sins and justified us. Remember? For His elect, Jesus Christ paid for their sins actively so that their sins were punished in Christ, and we have Christ's active obedience and righteousness applied to our accounts. And the Bible tells us that the new covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, this is the term of the new covenant. Do you, do you like this benefit? You know, pe- there's some people that want, that can't wait till their daddy dies so they can rip open the last will and testament and see if they've got any goodies. But you know, the last will and testament of God says this, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. Is that sweet? Yes. I want to open that envelope. How do we open that envelope? We come into church services like this and hear these kind of things and we have the Lord's Supper. When we have the Lord's Supper, we're opening that envelope. Do you know why? Because Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament, the last will and testament of God. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. The Bible says that we are saved by means. You know what the means of salvation is? According to Hebrews chapter 9, by means of death. Because Paul reasons, if we have a last will and testament, it's of no force while the testator lives. The person that wrote the last will and testament doesn't mean a thing while the testator is still alive. Well, how can God die? He sent Jesus Christ. He wrote out all their sins and their iniquities. Will I remember no more? And then Jesus Christ died on the cross. 
And that covenant is in force. You say, how do you know it's in force? Because when he ascended up into the presence of God in Revelation chapter 5, God had the book of the everlasting covenant in his hand, sealed with seven seals, and no man could open that book. And John wept because there was no man found in heaven or earth that could open that book. And all of a sudden, the Lord Jesus Christ had ascended up into heaven and was standing there in the presence of God, the four beasts, the 24 elders, and the choirs of heaven, and John himself, because he was there by vision. And what was the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ? As of a lamb slain. And he walked up to the, he, he came up to God, who was sitting on his throne, and he took the book of the everlasting covenant out of the hands of God. And he took the first seal and ripped it off. Because he had laid down his life for us, he had the rights to the everlasting covenant. As soon as he ripped the seal off that book, the first seal, what happened? They start singing. That's why we like singing in this church. Because they started singing. And there's three choirs that sang in succession about Jesus Christ being worthy and the Lamb being worthy because He redeemed us to God by His blood. And when they got done singing, I want to hear who said Amen. Come on! The, the, the four beasts. The 24 elders cast their crowns down before Him and the four beasts said Amen. That's our salvation, brethren. And so when we read in verse 23, I never knew you depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Think about the words. Ye that work iniquity. You that have presently been continuing in a lifestyle of sin, I don't know you. Because those that are his elect, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This passage isn't written to scare little children of God. This passage is not written to frighten sheep. This passage is to tell you where the false prophets of verse 20, verse 15 through 20 are going. See, in verses 15 through 20, there are false prophets that the little sheep of Jesus need to beware of because these false prophets are ravening wolves, but they come to the sheep of Jesus Christ in sheep's clothing, looking like sheep's. They are to be recognized by their fruits, and those are the ones that are being damned in verses 21 through 23. It's not to scare the children of God. You say, I don't... I don't want to hear the Lord say, I never knew you. Then it's easy. It's easy, brethren. Do the will of your Father which is in heaven. Those that do the will of their Father which is in heaven have nothing to do with what is described in verses 21 through 23. You say, what is the will of my Father which is in heaven? Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Because he said in verse 20 of Matthew 5, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says at the end of this, that's the beginning of the sermon. At the end of the sermon, he says, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And so here we are in the great day of judgment, but your house is built upon a rock. But when God sits on the throne of judgment and the heaven and the earth flees away, according to Revelation chapter 20, and everyone flees from the face of him that sits on the throne, that is a storm. The winds are now blowing and the waves are thrashing your house, but your house is built upon a rock and it will stand that flood. And what? And how do you build your house upon a rock? I'll say it again. Therefore, whosoever, you want another whosoever? Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Did it say in Second Peter chapter 1, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Does the Bible all fit together? Ye shall never fall. Does it say the same thing in Psalm 15? Look at the last verse. Look at the last. Uh, don't look. Just listen because it'll take you a while to get there. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Your house won't even move an inch in the great day of judgment. I'm going to tell you, we won't be all terrified, brethren. We're going to know He's our beloved Lord. You know what it says in Second Thessalonians chapter one? When we see Him with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance, listen to the words: with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. Do you know what it says we're going to be doing? <laughs> Admiring Him. For the first time in our lives, we're going to see a righteous judge. And the righteous judge is going to hate every sinner and every sin. 
and he's going to love us. And he is not ashamed to call us brethren. That judge sitting on that throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, because God has put all judgment into his hands, that judge sitting on that throne is not ashamed to call us brethren. Brother, come on up here. He said it's impossible. No, that's the gospel. And it's why it's called good news and glad tidings. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.